Welcome to an O'Reilly Media Podcast. I'm Nikki McDonald, Content Director at O'Reilly and Chair of O'Reilly's Velocity Conference. Today, I'm speaking with George Miranda, Director of Community at Buoyant, which builds open source service mesh architecture. We'll be talking about service mesh, the problems a service mesh solves, and the features you'll find most useful in a service mesh. We'll also discuss how to get started with a service mesh and the challenges you might face deploying it in production. Hi, George. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nikki. It's good to be here. Okay, let's start by telling people what a service mesh is. Sure. Um, there are a lot of moving pieces to a service mesh, but the way I usually describe it is by saying that a, a service mesh is a dedicated infrastructure layer for handling service-to-service communication. Um, but let's break that down, right? There are a couple of different types of network communication, and this is typically referred to as the north-south versus east-west traffic pattern, which is so named because if you look at the way that architecture diagrams are typically drawn, when you go north-south or top-to-bottom, that's server-to-client traffic. And if you go east-west or left-to-right in those diagrams, that's server-to-server. And so a service mesh is primarily designed to solve problems that are inherent to that east-west server-to-server model, right? And for the problems that happen when you scale that type of communication in your infrastructure. Um, So a service mesh works for for all network traffic, um, but its value particularly shines in that service-to-service model. And a service mesh gives you mechanisms to make that class of traffic more visible, manageable, and controlled. Um, I think in our infrastructures, historically with monoliths, we're used to dealing with that server-to-client traffic. Um, I think that's a well-understood quantity, but I think as we start seeing more service-to-service traffic, that has its own inherent challenges. And it's called a mesh because, um, and although the details of you know how these things are implemented vary between different products, generally speaking, every service mesh is, is implemented as a, as a series or a, or a mesh of interconnected network proxies that transparently sit in front of your app, right? So when I say that, this is what I mean. A service mesh is a dedicated infrastructure layer for handling service-to-service communication. So why all of a sudden is this technology so popular? What problems does a service mesh infrastructure help solve? Well, I think that class of network traffic, right, that east-west server-to-server traffic has suddenly exploded in a lot of infrastructures with um, the shift to cloud-native architecture. Right? And, and instead of servers, right, where we have our dozens, um, hundreds, or even thousands of instances of different microservices. And the rise of containers, I think, has made it easy to adopt patterns that were once relegated only to the ultra-large web-scale giants of the world. Right? And I think one of my favorite descriptions of this comes from the team at Facebook. Um, they used to refer to their infrastructure as Carl Sagan-sized infrastructure, right? Just <laughs> astronomical. Um, and, and they built all of that in a pre-Docker world, right? Um, but now with containers and the popularization of containers, um, everyone can have a Carl Sagan-sized infrastructure without needing a Carl Sagan-sized budget behind it. And there are all sorts of benefits to that modular cloud-native driven approach, and I'm not going to rehash those here. Um, but what I will say is that um, what I see is that oftentimes organizations adopt these new patterns um, without a whole lot of forethought to how it's going to impact their applications in production. Right? We see the benefits, but we don't always realize some of the rub that's behind them. And what happens you know, when you take those patterns to their logical conclusion, right, when you start going down the path of breaking down monoliths into microservices, is that all of those functions that used to be a part of all the same runtime, right? Everything was happening locally on one machine. Um, all of those functions are now distributed, right? And so the, the success or failure of complex decision trees that 
live in your applications all used to happen on the same box. But now, you know, rather than using a like a semaphore to run a function, right, you're using the network to make those calls. And so your network and that that communication between those services, that becomes the fundamental factor that determines how your your apps are going to behave at runtime, right? And so when you go down that path and when you get into that world, what you encounter, I think, is a, is a well-understood set of problems. And those are the fallacies of distributed computing, right? It turns out that your network is unreliable. It turns out that latency is not zero, right? Transport cost is not zero. Bandwidth is finite, right? And so on. Um, and I think all of those limitations need to be accounted for. But I think what we're seeing now is that in applications that are shifting to this microservice world, typically those applications have never had to account for this kind of distributed nature in the past, right? And so a service mesh gives you ways to easily solve those problems without needing to change your applications. And I think what we've seen is that as early adopters have tended to slam into those issues, so too has the popularity of a service mesh also arisen and seemed to explode overnight. So let's let's talk specifically about how a service mesh helps solve some of these problems. What features are most useful in, in helping people to manage and monitor and control their production applications? Sure. So I think uh, historically, um, the solutions of the problems that we just talked about, right, tended to be written into your application. And so that would mean, you know, if you have to make a remote call, your program would open a socket, and transmit some data, retry it for some amount of time, right, close it. Uh, move on to the next one, right? And so on and so on. Um, but if you start having to write that sort of functionality, it turns out you realize that it's not that simple. You know, in production, you need to start seeing what's happening in that layer that you've just written to solve these problems if things go wrong, right? So suddenly you start coding in metrics collection utilities into your apps. And then you have to store and process all of those metrics somewhere, right? So you build a place to do that. And then, you know, you need to encrypt all that traffic that's being communicated over the wire so that it's secure, right? And you end up baking all of that into your application. You need load balancing and circuit breaking, custom routing, right? Service discovery. Before you know it, your apps end up having all this custom tightly coupled code for these solutions to distributed networking problems baked in, right? And what happens in that world is that you've suddenly now put the burden of what of solving what should be uh, a fairly commodity layer, right? Like these, these problems are very well understood, um, but you've put that burden on your developer. Right. Your developers should probably be focused on writing better business logic, but instead, in this distributed world, right, we're sort of spending a lot of time on what should be commodity functionality, right, in a layer that lives at the infrastructure part of your stack. And that's where a service mesh can be, right? So it decouples those concerns from application code, and, you know, and it allows you to manage, monitor, and control your distributed apps um, in a more common, like, globally manageable layer, right? And so as we covered earlier, um, a service mesh has a proxy layer, right? That mesh of endpoints that are being managed. Um, but it should also have a control layer, um, you know, a place where you compose global management policies around how service to service traffic should behave, um, right? And so that that control plane is where you compose these policies so that the underlying data plane, that proxying layer, um, can alter its behavior accordingly. Right? And and the tunables that are exposed in that control plane give you control that you've never had before. Things like performance-based load balancing, right? Not just schemes like road, like round robin, but you know, load balancing schemes based on performance that happens in the layer three and layer four part of the stack. Timeouts and retries. Retries, right, can fall into these lengthy retry loops, consuming resources, creating bottlenecks, and causing secondary failures. So you also get a lot of constructs to help mitigate cascading failures, custom routing rules, mutual TLS, 
um, rich service metrics and so on, right? At a high level, I think that's how it all starts to come together. And those are some of the basic components you can expect in any tool calling itself a, a service mesh. So in your book, The Service Mesh, it's called The Service Mesh, Resilient Service to Service Communication for Cloud Applications. Um, it's a handful. It, it is. That's a, a lot to say. Um, it doesn't discuss specific features of the various service mesh options that are currently available. So can you talk to us about how someone reading your book could dive a bit deeper into discovering what those are? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so um, I think uh, huh, this book has been a little bit of a moving target, right? Like the, the service mesh ecosystem is fairly new and there's a ton of development um, that's currently happening. And I think for me, one of the biggest challenges in writing this book was um, writing about these tools in a way that, that could withstand the test of time, right? Because I think a year from now, if you look back on the ecosystem, it's going to look radically different than it does today, right? For example, this week, HashiCorp threw its hat into the service mesh arena, you know, to compete with the new console connect offering. And I think, you know, as in the time that I've spent in the service mesh ecosystem, we've seen some players quickly enter and quickly exit. So it's a very exciting time. And I think the purpose of this book is to more generally introduce readers into the rationale behind why this category of tools exists. And so I think it's a, it's a clear look at the real problems that have driven the early days of this ecosystem, the history behind these solutions, um, and some of the solution patterns to the problems that are inherent in this world, right? So it's an introduction into, I think what I see is what's become table stakes type features that any service mesh should have. Um, and again, right, like the fallacies of distributed computing are well understood and there are well-tested solutions to these types of problems. So this book focuses instead on the why behind a service mesh, right? Why do these features exist? How specifically can they be used, right? What types of real problems are solved by this class of tool? And so I try to tell this story in a very vendor agnostic way. And the idea here is that after reading this book, um, a reader can better understand the specific features in a service mesh, right? What those products can do. And then you couple that with your own expertise about your own applications and your own infrastructure. And that sets you up to better be able to evaluate potential products with a much clearer idea of what's actually going to work for you. So I think this is just sort of, you know, the, the introductory layer that, that first cracks that, um, that ice, right? And the good news is that if you really want to dive deep, most of these tools are open source. They have active support and development communities around them. And so my advice would be to do a quick introductory sweep of all of the popular options once you sort of read the book and are familiar with the space figure out what best fits your use case, right? And then really dive in deep with any of these communities to, to go through your due diligence. Okay, so we've talked about um, the problems that a service mesh solves, but what are some of the challenges of getting a service mesh deployed to production? What are some of the issues there that difficulties people might face? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think, well, first and foremost, right? Many service mesh offerings, like right now as we're recording this podcast anyway, aren't production ready. Right. They're still kind of in a, in a beta phase. There's a lot of development and testing. Um, at Buoyant, we've been supporting Linkerd in production for close to two years now. And well, I'll tell you what, that what we've seen is, um, as you would probably expect with any new tool, there, there's a mix of both technical and cultural challenges trying to get this out in, into production. Um, but from a technical perspective, right, I, I'd say this, that new service mesh layer runs deep, right? It touches everything in your infrastructure. It's not just, you know, a new monitoring tool or a deployment tool or, you know, some new bit of storage, it works in a layer right? that is fundamental. It's that fundamental determining factor for how your applications behave at runtime. And so if anything at all goes wrong, especially right after you introduce this new layer, um, it tends to be the thing that people blame first, right? Obviously, that new thing that we just deployed 
that's the problem. So I think it's important to choose um, a service mesh tool that's built around uh, an ability to be introspective, right? Like runtime diagnostics are a really big deal in production. You have to be able to see what's happening and determine what's happening in the service mesh layer and what's actually happening in the application layer. Right? Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of blame and sadness and tears and just confusion, right? And that jeopard that just jeopardizes the entire production push. And so from the technical perspective, right, you should be able to select tools with really well-understood failure modes with great constructs around uh, observability, right? That's probably number one. And then what I'll quickly say about number two is that I think the other big challenge is more cultural, right? How do you get buy-in across your organization to support this layer? And, and a lot of that is just, you know, a process of understanding the needs of your stakeholders and aligning with their values. Um, William Morgan, our, our CEO, likes to say that um, any sufficiently advanced engineering is indistinguishable from sales. <laughs> and I think that's true, right? You, you have to sell it internally. You have to educate people on the value, understand what their needs are and how they fit. And above all, you have to be crystal clear, right? What real business problem is this new tool solving? Because without that kind of clarity, you're going to have a really hard time deploying to production. Right? Because again, this new tool will inevitably experience some kind of failure. And if you don't understand that failure well, and if you don't understand why it's strategic to your business to tolerate that kind of failure until you figure it out, right, that is going to be the next biggest hurdle and the biggest challenge to getting this deployed and staying deployed um, in your production environment. Okay, so say you say you you've decided that you you need a service mesh that you it, you do have a real business problem that it will solve and and you do get buy in. What is the next steps? How do you get how does one get started with a service mesh? Yeah, um, I think uh, there's a, there's a there's a section uh, in this book around uh, the quite types of questions that you should be asking yourself. I think the very next step would be to look at a product and the features that it solves, and ask yourself some organizational questions that look at how your team operates, um, what communication structures are like, um, that has you analyze the type of tooling that you have in your infrastructure today. And ask yourself, what happens when I introduce a tool that maybe overlaps with some of those features? Uh, and so I think there's a set of steps that you can go through um, that really are based around your own internal workflows and your own internal team structures. Sort of following Conway's law, I think that we tend organizations tend to build products that mimic their own workflows and communication processes. And I think if you look around the service mesh ecosystem, you'll see that each tool has a very um, opinionated implementation for how those processes occur, what you should be able to turn on or turn off, or how you, you know, roll things out in a way that you know, makes sense for your organization. So I think uh, you know, taking, a, taking a look back and asking yourself how things work for your organization, your infrastructure, what the real business problems you have are, and the feature list of these different products, right? By sort of triaging those things, you can get to a good place where you realize, you know, at least what's a good place to start. And I would say also because it's such a new days in the service mesh ecosystem, um, go through a couple of evaluations, right? Try at least two or three products, put them head to head and figure out what works best for you. Thank you so much, George. This was, this was very informative and uh, a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Nikki. I've enjoyed being here.